This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. I actually want to um, briefly acknowledge how much my own uh, graduate training and work at Yale had impact on what I'm doing, and that even though it was quite a long time ago, uh, one of my mentors there was Judith Roden, who I think a number of you may be familiar with her work. And I was influenced in a very profound way by her addressing the issue of internal versus external uh, response to uh, food cues. And the focus had been more on ex focus on external food cues, but I had also begun my training in psychophysiology and models of uh, biofeedback and self-regulation. I said, wait a minute, part of what's going on here is a disconnect with the internal experience. And that what really fe has fed into, to use a pun, um, <clears throat> my work ever since then. Um, I also wanted to, given um, I, I thought the last speaker's talk was beautiful, I wanted to acknowledge that part of what was going on for me at Yale also was that I was struggling also with a fairly significant binge eating disorder. And I started to think in terms of, wait a minute, what about this internal external thing? And also giving myself permission to shift my relationship with food. And I did something very simple. It was, it felt like a, I can still remember the aha experience. I said, my typical binge at night consists of, you know, whatever the donuts or the, something rich and fat and sweet. And I'm gonna shift that to lunch. And I'm gonna start eating that food for lunch. And I'm going to really give myself permission to eat it. And I'm going to, what's more, is I'm going to let myself enjoy it. And I'm going to take a sort of meditative stance around this, too, because I'd already started doing work with meditation at that point as a psychological process. And it was, uh, it was profound. It almost immediately, I found I had a shift in my own relationship with my cravings and my urges and the binging. It didn't drop out immediately. It wasn't quite that magical, but it really shifted very quickly. And I started to continue exploring how to work with both that insight, but also the fairly profound grounding that I was getting there in basic food intake regulation research. Um, and so I'm going to be making some reference back to that, but I'm going to give you a little bit of story of where I've gone from, net, from there. So, um, <laughs> if you've seen this cartoon before, if you've heard me talk you've, before, you've seen this cartoon, because I always use it, because to me, it, what it is, it illustrates that struggle, that sense of, God, I want that, but I mustn't. <clears throat> 
I'm going to be talking about theory of disordered eating, uh, touching on self-regulatory issues, theory of mindfulness and acceptance approaches, and our clinical research program on MBE to date. So this I'm going through quickly. You've heard most of this. Um, our biology definitely and our conditioning sets us up for a ver variety of very challenging um, uh, issues. So we, they're definitely high preference for high fat, high sweet foods. Normal eaters have that, most of them. Oh, I forgot to mention one other important thing at Yale. Uh, one of the studies that I did at Yale was, a, was trying to assess patterns of relationship to eating among Yale undergraduates, very few of whom had, um, uh, were obese but a good number of whom we knew were struggling with eating disorders. Um, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. So what we found is we identified six subgroups of using cluster analytic approach, six subgroups of Yale undergraduates. We had a disinterested eater group, which you want to keep out of this kind of research unless you're, you want to study them, because they'll really throw everything off. They don't care about food much. Then we had a group that, but everybody else pretty much said, yeah, I like food, I use food to celebrate, and I eat more when I'm stressed, which was really interesting. But the individuals who had problems with eating out of control were the ones who had the clinical or subclinical eating disorders. They were the heavier ones. The ones who said, yeah, I sometimes eat out of control, sometimes eat compulsively, but hey, big deal, I make up for it later. Their weights were lower, and it wasn't an ongoing issue for them. Again, very interesting. So we have overriding physical hunger and satiety cues, evolutionary press, using food for all kinds of reasons. Again, I would make the point that isn't necessarily abnormal, and we use that, we make that point in our clinical work, uh, over identity with food and body image, counter-regulatory behavior, and as we all are prone to sometimes looking for overly simple answers. So <clears throat> mindlessness, as I want to set up in contrast to mindfulness, we're designed to develop mindlessness around things we do habitually. This, and again, in and of itself, isn't pathological. If you've had a 16-year-old learning to drive, you really hope they get to the point where they can, you know, a lot of it goes on automatic. Um, we attach meaning to things all the time. We are driven to attach meaning to things. We, and it, much of that happens without awareness. We know now how incredibly rapidly the brain processes information and responds. Again, not abnormal. What I would say is response versus reactivity happens when there's a sense of loss of control, loss of choice, and intense affective valence. I would say that we were hearing about that happening in rats in the last talk. But this pattern, this reactivity, this sense of I am caught up in this and I can't do anything about it is particularly characteristic of many of the issues that as clinicians, as clinical psychologists, clinical researchers, we are most concerned about. The addictions, the chronic um, depression, anxiety disorders. So patterns of mindless eating, choosing food without considering nutritional value, but we all do that on occasion. Influence of environmental signals, 
Kelly's work absolutely profound also in um, influencing my thinking on this. Oversensitivity to other types of eating triggers, not tuning into physical hunger signals. I really was just before lunch. I, 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 um, not turning into taste satiety cues or technical terminology, sensory specific satiety. What we find in many of our compulsive overeaters is they will say, you're right, I actually don't really taste what I'm eating here. After the first couple of bites, they're chasing what we call chasing the flavor. They think if they just eat more, they may be eating more for lots of reasons, dissociating, getting rid of, getting, you know, putting the depression behind them, whatever. But they're also say, yeah, I'm chasing the flavor. I somehow think that if I just keep eating more, I'm going to get that pleasure back that was there only in the first few bites. Not being aware of moderate fullness cues. Now, mindfulness, <clears throat> I'm curious, how many of you have done or doing any work with mindfulness, have some familiarity with that? That's great. Uh, over the last five years, I see more and more hands go up around that. Um, it is a cognitive attentional state marked by attentional stability. And in mindfulness training, that's what we're trying to cultivate. One of the effects is that, and I would posit, and primary effect is that it is powerful in disengaging habitual reactivity and then allowing for inner wisdom to emerge, which may sound like the sort of weird, one of those weird little things, but I'll, I'm going to come back to what I mean by that. Um, so meditation as intentional or self-regulatory process, very simple, um, focusing on an object, often repetitive, to train attention, disengage ruminative thinking, guided or directed focus as indicated because we're applying it to eating per se. So the, that guided component uh, is often underappreciated. Um, a physically awake state, we're not going and sending anybody into a trance. Um, there are, there are uh, historical paths within meditation where that is uh, what you're aiming for, but that's not what we're doing. Quiet, detached noting of other thoughts as they arise, experiences, attitude of acceptance rather than critical judgment. This is a really, really important difference. We're beginning to see that that in and of itself is probably tapping into uh, an aspect of inner, um, of, our, of our emotional um, processing that has been up to this point actually fairly underappreciated. Uh, general return to original focus when attention wanders, training in doing that, and then application of this uh, in various areas of one's life where you might in fact have distress. So how is it that these relatively simple, and they are relatively simple, neurocognitive manipulations have such wide range of clinical effects? The literature, it's accruing, it is by no means um, totally compelling at this point, um, but, but the, the data has been growing. You have improvement in psychobiological regulation, cultivation of emotional well-being, decrease in anxiety, improvement in anger management, improvement in behavioral regulation, uh, Alan Marlatz in alcohol and drug addiction, the work I've been doing, um, just some beginning work um, in smoking uh, sensation. Much more can be done with that. Cassie Vietten is over there, has done some work in that area. Um, cultivation of compassion, loving kindness, spiritual well-being, and transformation. 
not necessarily tied to that being a goal. So for example, a study that we did with the mindfulness-based stress reduction at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, uh, where John Kabat-Zinn established his program, what we found is that individuals who went through that program, absolutely no mention of religious, religion or spirituality whatsoever, increased on, an in, on a measure of spiritual well-being, and that was one of the best correlates of their improving on their sense of health, of well-being in their health issues. So what I, what I would say is one of the things that we've been talking about is a struggle between approach avoidance. Very, very basic psychological principles. You're pulled to the food and you're afraid of it. You're pulled, you know, that dynamic there uh, is classic, doesn't really need to be further explored or explained, but I want to, I'm setting the stage here a little bit. In, in our compulsive overeating, what we have is there's the approach to the cravings, emotions, temptations, socializing, and what happens is that gives, is people give into that more and more. You have that growth in the binging, the overeating, the fasting, grazing. You get into a self-sustaining and increasingly self-sustaining cycle <coughs> that feels out of control. I should have put struggle in right in the middle of that because that's, that's what I'm referring to. There is a growing recognition, as I was saying, that we actually need to incorporate into our understanding of emotional regulation of relationship to anything that has that strong um, conditioned potentiality, another arena of um, emotional modulation. This is coming out of some of the work showing that endorphins are really are powerful and operate separately from these other two arenas. And some of, for example, I think some of um, Richard Davidson's work showing the shift toward um, left laterality and increased positive emotion in very, very experienced monks. But I'm, what I really want to say is this is, this in truth is there for everybody. It's the affiliative side of us. It's the caregiving. We definitely have animal models for this at this point. And that what I, I want to put this up on the board because I'm suggesting that um, part of what I'm, what, what I'm operating at is bringing this into the picture. With individual, around sense of self, around and also in relationship to food, which I'll come to, when in fact people have been caught up here. Oh, yes, and that can, there you go. So in relation to food, we have appetite, you know, the approach, appetite, pursuit, craving, excess intake, avoidance, anxiety, fear, depression. Anyone who's worked with anxiety, with eating disordered individuals know that they feel as much caught up here. And in fact, some recent studies show that, you know, maybe the first half a minute of a binge for many people is over here, and, and as soon as it gets going, it's over here. And what I'm talking about is how can we bring this into more balance? And what I would say is actually much of normal eating, much of our 
you know, inner gourmet, much of the sense of, I mean, how many people enjoy their lunch? I know I did. A little rushed, but otherwise I enjoyed it. <laughs> There's comfort there. Balance. You're, you're engaging this. And that's not necessary. I don't want to define that as pathological, right? Right. Okay? It isn't going to be the food industry that gets on Kelly. It's going to be gourmet mag A gourmet magazine went out of print. Yeah, print. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I, there, there is a positive side of that. So mindfulness meditation, <clears throat> what we're doing is we're first heightening awareness of that reactive process. We are then helping people disengage automatic reactivity specific to a targeted experience. I'm going to give you a brief sense of what we have in our program, but that targeted experience is around prob people's problem foods. We are working with people who need to relearn how to eat carrot sticks. They need to learn how to re-relate re to their favorite cookie or learn that, as I may share, it isn't their favorite cookie necessarily. This happens in all the domains of functioning, which in fact have bearing on our eating also. And then the third stage is supporting emergence of more integrative response potentials and self-acceptance in whatever domain of functioning is being engaged. So we had a woman who got, went through our program, and she um, she wasn't actually that far into it. We'd done a little bit of work with mind being aware of hunger, being aware of making food choices, and we're talking physical hunger rather than some other trigger that might be interpreted as hunger but isn't physical. So she was in her office late morning. Somebody had brought the donuts in to the break room, and her typical thing is she went in, she got one or two. She'd gobble them down. She went back. She'd sneak another couple. And if the box got left there too long, the box disappeared, but not in the wastebasket into her office. And she said she had gotten a donut. She said, OK, I'm a little hungry. I had a light breakfast about two and a half hours ago. This is cool. This is fine. She said, I ate the first bite. It was absolutely delicious. I had the second bite. Wasn't quite so good, but was OK. Had the third bite. It didn't taste good anymore. It was too sweet. It was too greasy. I threw the donut out, and I have never done this in my life before. And we weren't telling her to do this. It came out of her own stopping, taking a moment, and saying, that's an option I have here. So we're improving emotional regulation, decreasing threat reactivity, increasing the relaxation response. Um, heightening positive emotional response. I'm going to go through this. I just got a five minutes heads up. <laughs> um, we're trying to recreate wisdom. In other words, when you back off from the automatic response, you're not in the, you're, you're moving into what's called serial processing. You're, um, or rather, you're moving into the, the, uh, the blah, talking too fast the parallel distributed processing model, which has um, gotten a lot of interest. And you're going for more integrated complex responses. We're giving that self, we're giving the locus of control back to the person in an inherently complex daily, not daily task of choosing what to eat, multiple times a day task. A really interesting analog study that was done um, by a group out of Drexel um, 
Foreman and, and Michael Lowe uh, is is uh, one of my colleagues, where they put they asked people with a range of eating issues. They didn't particularly screen on this. Uh, Michael Lowe has a measure called the Power of Food Scale. People who are high on the Power of Food Scale would probably describe themselves as addicted, and that they asked them to carry around chocolates, not gourmet chocolates, Hershey Kisses, in a little clear bag for about two days. And then they had them track how compelled did they feel to eat the chocolate even though they weren't supposed to. What was, how, how much did this affect them? What they found is, and then they randomized them to get three different, again, analog interventions. These were, these were done in very short order you know, not clinical treatment model. The, um, the green line's the no instruction control. The blue line is modeled after Kelly's learn manual. And the red line is an acceptance-based treatment. Didn't involve any meditation, actually, from what I understand and what I read. What's interesting is that, um, as you can see, at the low levels, there were no differences, low level of power of food. This is on how much, this is on the, a food craving questionnaire related to the chocolate. Um, but the group that got the acceptance-based analog intervention, as their, even though as their power of food score went up, this went up. But what was more interesting to me was they actually asked, how much did you think about chocolate or the kisses? The green went up, the blue didn't go up as much, and the acceptance-based group started higher, interestingly, at the low end, because they were being instructed to be aware of their experience. So they went up, and they, went, but they were absolutely the lowest for the people with a very, very high power of food scores. And that is a very high level. So keep that in mind. So now, let me talk about what, I have one minute left to do all the rest of it. Okay, so we train people in mindfulness meditation, awareness of triggers, awareness of physical and emotional hunger, taste-specific satiety or sensory-specific satiety, awareness of fullness, awareness of food choices. We use several food-related meditations. Uh, raisin meditation, chocolate, cheese and crackers, cookies versus chips, which do you really want and how do you know that? A potluck meal and the culminating homework is they have to go out to an all-you-can-eat buffet. We get, we've learned to give them two weeks to do that. Uh, mini meditations with daily meals and snacks, forgiveness and wisdom meditations and homework. So. Um, this was our pilot study. It was a doctoral dissertation about 10 years ago. What we found is a, is a steady decrease in the binge eating scale, which is a fairly sensitive, it, it isn't specific by the way to diagnosing binge eating disorder. Even all these, all these people had binge eating disorder. Then our next study was uh, funded by NCAM, um, uh, average age 46, average weight 240 pounds, nine-week intervention, four-month follow-up. We had uh, it, uh, more impact on the MBE group that didn't quite reach statistical significance, um, decrease in depression, greater internalization, including on the power of food scale, no average weight loss, but the amount of meditation practice people did predicted improvement in their compulsive eating 
indicators and their weight loss. And that was just, this is actually the power of food scale, uh, and that is, a, that is a statistically significant difference here um, between the two groups. The psychoed group was actually, this was done with Duke University, was their version of their state-of-the-art treatment done at the Duke Diet and Fitness Center for people who come in with binge eating disorder. Now, what we discovered, we, had, we were concerned we had no average weight loss. That meant some people gained weight, right? If, some people lost. We realized there was a need for outer wisdom, <coughs> training outer wisdom. In other words, this food is not good for you. <laughs> you need to keep an eye on it. We are not giving you permission to eat as much of it as you want. Um, fried Twinkies and Oreos, that's a fair in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is where I am. So we added in our most recent study, which we're wrapping, we're just finished doing data analysis for now, something we call the 500 calorie challenge. You need to, if you want to lose weight, and you're all saying you do, you need to decrease your calories. And we recommend 500 calories, figure out where to get 500 calories from a day, six, seven days a week, 3,500 calories, that's right at your one pound a week recommendation weight loss, okay? Um, calorie awareness, gave them a calorie book. Calorie King is really neat. Taught them to read food labels. Um, said, look, you know, one rule of thumb, if you're not sure you can have that snack or how much to have, about 100 calories per hour is not a bad place to aim for. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You're eating dinner at 6. You're starving. Give yourself 200 calories. So we are grounding this in what we know. Exercise planning, pedometer use, some of the people loved that, others didn't adapt. But the main theme was adapting to personal preferences and patterns. If you aren't making a change that you're not willing to live with essentially the rest of your life, what's the point? So what we found, we had a pretty comparable sample. Um, the um, Again, we had an uh, average weight of 256 pounds. About 30% have BD. This, is, this was only selected for weight. Um, we had significant weight loss, which at, given where we started focusing on weight, that was about a pound a week, a little less. We had significant improvement on all scales of the three-factor eating questionnaire sustained up to one month. Binge eating scale decreased about the same. What I'm showing show you now, we just did the breakout analysis for individuals with binge eating disorder versus those who didn't have it. We thought maybe we're getting all of our effects with the people who didn't have it. Those are, that's our control group. These are the two, these are the binge eaters. These are the non-binge eaters. That's actually statistically different, but basically they're dropping down to the same level. This is on the T uh, Stunkard and Messick disinhibition scale. They start much higher. They're dropping down to the same level. This is on cognitive restraint. They start about the same place. Actually, we're, this surprises me. This isn't statistically, yes, this is actually the 0.001 level is statistically different. And the weight loss was identical in the two groups. Now, I will say we had a little more dropout among our binge, binge eaters, not statistically significant, but a little bit more. So, and obviously, we don't know about those. So this was, this was an interview of someone who had binge eating disorder. Um, 
I use, I use my mindfulness with everything. Sometimes I just count to 10, but I don't binge anymore at all. I don't really diet, but I don't binge at all. And this was just about um, not getting angry at her husband because he spilled something in the car. Um, so now I hesitated to put this slide up. This is definitely a no-no cookie by you know what we've all been talking about. But this is what we're finding our folks, in fact, are increasingly able to do. It's not magic. We still have people binging. We still have people saying, you know, if I've had a really bad day and there's a cookie box of cookies left on the counter, it may be a problem for me. But it is clearly a difference um, and a substantial difference from where they were. So this is uh, just. If you're interested in looking at a broader range of work being done in this area, Center for Mindful Eating, I'll be doing some training at Omega this summer. I want to acknowledge my graduate students and colleagues and my colleagues at Duke, and thank you very much.